This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. Hello, and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. This episode is for the middle of April 2018. My name is David Dalt, and I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York, and he's assistant professor of systematic theology at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Dan, as always, it's great to see you. David, the pleasure is mine. On today's episode, we're looking at three topics. First of all, we'll be talking about Synod 2018 on young people, the faith, and vocational discernment. Next, Stephen Clark was an African-American man who was gunned down in his own backyard by police. We're going to be talking about it. And in our last segment of the show, we welcome St. Mary's College of California faculty member Jessica Koblenz. She'll be talking to us about mental health in the public square and many other topics. We also have special bonus segments for all of you friends of Frank who support the show by donating each month on Patreon. Every couple of weeks, we add a little bit of bonus audio, an extended discussion or an interview, sometimes even video. We're still working on that. If you'd like to hear them, you can. Go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod and become a monthly supporter of the show. All through this season, we've had more and more Patreon supporters coming on board and supporting the show. And so I just want to say a quick shout out to Buck and Carol Ann and Tracy and the Neller family and Joshua and Raymond and Matthew and Candace and Bridget and Anthony and Mary and Deborah and everyone else who has supported us on Patreon. We appreciate you. Those who have signed up at the book level, the books are coming. And those who signed up during the Lenten promotion, those books are coming too. Thank you for your patience. And we just so appreciate all that you are doing to help to support the show. And please tell your friends. Thanks again. Before we get started, we also want to remind you that you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at FrancisFXPod. That's Francis, the letters F and X and the word pod. And if you want to send us a question or a comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing FrancisEffectPod at gmail.com. We also want to thank our season sponsors, Liturgical Press and Franciscan Media. They help to make this show possible, so please show them your support and let them know that you appreciate it. Thank you. So, Dan, how have you been? What's been going on? David, I've been well. It's been busy and good. We talked in the last episode about uh, L.A. Congress and, and coming off the back of that. 
I was, surprise, surprise, on the road again, this time to Houston for an Association of Theological Schools conference where I gave a talk, and then off to the glorious campus of St. Bonaventure University, my alma mater, and we had a board of trustees meeting there. And it's been, yeah, exciting. Good stuff, good meetings, good presentations, good people, good for the Ramblers here in Chicago as well. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, everybody in Chicago has kind of gone Loyola crazy. I was on Facebook with a friend of mine who's an Anglican priest, and he was, he and I were kind of going back and forth like we do. And I was like, yeah, but who's got two teams in the final four? The Catholics do. So come on. <laughs> That's true. That's true. <laughs> it was a cheap shot, but it was there to take. So, And so you took it. And so, so how the heck are you? Um, I'm good. It's Easter week as we're recording this. So this is Holy Thursday when we're recording this. And I was saying before the show, I get emotional during Easter week. And so I'm sort of carrying that around. And it's, it's you know, I'm just meditating on the on the death of our Savior and all of that and, and what it means to have a resurrection in, there in one's life. I've been talking a lot about that with my family, and that's been a lot of fun. And we have, speaking of family, we've got my wife's parents coming in this weekend to be with us for the week of Easter. They'll be helping out because the kids are on spring break. And so... Is this... The, these are the Pittsburghers. These are the Pittsburghers. And so it's kind of blessings all around. You know, other than that, it's been a busy week. I do audio production on the side when I'm not producing shows like this. And so it's been a busy week for that, but that's good. And the writing continues to go well. It's just a matter of finding time to sleep. That's always a complicated issue. Yeah. Some people just don't. Yeah. And we call them vampire. <laughs> hey, have you thought about becoming a vampire? <laughs> My family, going as far back as I can find, we're werewolves, not vampires. Oh, so, yeah. Um, yeah. But that being said, I had actually a trivia question about Triduum, and hmm. it came up this morning with my family, and I said, well, I'm going to be talking to a priest, so maybe I can ask my friend Father Dan. So we were all debating whether or not Triduum is part of the Lenten season, whether or not it's part of the Easter season, or whether Holy Week is its own liturgical season. We don't know. Everybody in the family, as we were driving in the car today, had opinions, but I'd love to hear what you think. Yeah, so, though you're correct, I am a priest, and I am a theologian, I'm not a liturgist, so I need to give this disclaimer, sort of like those commercials, you know, you need to seek the advice of a medical professional, don't take our word for it, right? So, actually, this might be a question worth uh, floating by our friend of the pod, uh, Father Gil Ostick, mm -hmm. uh, who joined us to talk about liturgical translations, but I'll give it my best. There are ways in which the Triduum and Holy Week more broadly do fit within the larger picture of Lent, but, and this is uh, an interesting, but it occupies a very different pattern. So what I mean by that is two things. One is in the liturgical calendar, there are separate propers for each of the days. So in the liturgy of the office, for instance, we don't have any more the Wednesday or the Thursday or the Friday of the fourth week of Lent or this sort of thing. And when it comes to the colics and the prayer over the gifts and the prayer after communion in the Roman Missal, it has a whole separate setting. That begins with the Chrism Mass, which is typically celebrated in the morning of Holy Thursday, but a lot of dioceses do it on Tuesday or Monday so that more of the dioceses can come together and it won't conflict with what's going on at their respective parishes on Thursday night. For those who have seen liturgical calendars, like I, I'm not sure which publisher, so I don't want to misspeak. I think it might be our sponsor, Liturgical Press, but there are a number of publishers that make these kind of classroom size liturgical calendars that are a circle and they're shaded in for different colors. When you get to Triduum, there's solemnities that don't fit the regular mold. For instance, think of it just in terms of liturgical colors. Palm Sunday is red. 
We've got uh, Holy Thursday, which is white, and we do sing the Gloria this evening. It will be suppressed until the Easter Vigil, but nevertheless, that's a weird thing because that's suppressed throughout the rest of the season. Good Friday is red, and then we come back to Easter Vigil, which is the celebration of liturgical white. Now, one way to kind of determine whether or not it's part of Lent is to do the counting. You know, we have 40 days of Lent, which is false. We don't actually. And so some people have added this all up and they say, well, and you may have had this experience before, too, where people will talk about, well, if you give something up for Lent on Sundays, you can cheat because it doesn't really count. If it's you... not cheating. It's a feast day. You can't fast on a feast day. Even I know that. <laughs> See, there you go. You know, this is all sorts of excuses that, that creep in. But in any event... My answer is that it is a separate, whether it's a separate liturgical season, I don't know, but it is anomalous. It's it is separate, it's different. It's special time in some strange way. It is. It's, it, and it earns its own title. It's kind of like a mini season, we yeah. might say. I mean, the Triduum, Holy Week itself, beginning with the vigil of Palm Sunday, uh, so on Saturday night, really does inaugurate a different time. Mm -hmm. But especially this morning, things really change. Weird things, too, liturgical practices, for instance... Those who are members of religious communities or ordained to the diaconate or ministerial priesthood are obliged to celebrate the Liturgy of the Hours, except on Holy Thursday night and Good Friday, if they participate in the celebration of the Eucharist of the Lord's Supper or in the Passion, which is a very unusual thing. There, There's no other time where there's an exception like that. Hmm. And so, again, the rules, it's almost like you've seen Stranger Things, right? Yeah. Triduum is kind of like a liturgical upside-down land, you know, one of these places where things don't typically, I know, he's making a weird face. <laughs> this, is a, this, is, this is an audio program. People can't see your look. So here's what I'm going to say, that it's, it's, anom it's anomalous. It, it's not properly a different season, but it's not not a season. And it doesn't conform to the rules of Lent. Okay, that's a wonderful answer, and I love how technical and nerdy that was. Thank you. That was right up my <laughs> alley. That was, and I will take that back to my my kids, and they will ask me more questions about that. So that's good. You can bring it on next time. I'll look at. I'll look it up. I'll be prepared. So our first topic today is the Synod 2018 on young people, the faith, and vocational discernment. And I must be a bad Catholic, but Dan, until you mentioned this to me, I did not even know that this was happening. So why don't you, first of all, for those of our listeners who may be in the situation that I'm in, first of all, just brief us on what this is and has it happened? Is it still happening? Is it ongoing? What is it? Yeah, that's sort of like the eschaton. Is it happening? Did it happen? Is it going to happen? I feel like a Thessalonian right now. No, no, you're, you may or may not be a bad Catholic. I'm not in a position to judge, David, but you are not alone in probably not knowing much about this. So let me just very briefly say what a synod is, and there have been 14 of these to date. A synod is a gathering of bishops from around the world. It's not a full ecumenical council. That's uh, an instance in which all of the bishops of the world come together. And so we think of the Second Vatican Council, the First Vatican Council, the Council of Trent, the Council of Nicaea, etc. What we have here since the Second Vatican Council is the restoration of what's called the synod process. Part of what it means to be a bishop is to participate in synodality, which is a kind of communion or you know, a deeper fellowship that's symbolic of the church's broader communion. And beginning with the pontificate of Paul VI in the mid-20th century, there was this return to occasional, every few years or so, 
gathering of a representative number of bishops from around the world who would talk about a particular theme, a theme that was pertinent to a region of the world or a theological topic or uh, some pressing concern. So think of it as kind of a mini council. There is a, a magisterial dimension, an exercise of what's called ordinary magisterium, and that usually results in the sitting uh, bishop of Rome, the pope of the time, after the synod, publishing an apostolic letter. So the most recent instance of this was two back-to-back synods, two consecutive Octobers, where bishops from around the world gathered to talk about the family and the issue of the family. And what resulted is now the very well-known apostolic exhortation, Amoris Laetitia, authored by and, and signed by, promulgated by Pope Francis. So what we have now is Pope Francis called for another synod, a gathering of bishops, representative bishops from around the world. And the topic, whereas the last one was on the family, and there have been previous ones on, for instance, uh, the ministerial priesthood or on the Eucharist or whatever it may be, this 15th Ordinary General Assembly of the Synod of Bishops, the theme is young people, the faith, and vocational discernment. So in anticipation, there's a lot of preparation that goes into these synods. Now, more so under Benedict XVI and Pope Francis than there had been under Pope John Paul II. For all of his wonderful strengths and gifts to the church, one of his weaknesses was, we might say, a kind of managerial micromanagement. And uh, Paul VI, when he oversaw the synods, brought the bishops together and allowed them to really hash things out, to have a conversation about sometimes contentious issues, sometimes, you know, to bring experiences and differing viewpoints. John Paul II really stuck to, okay, here's a working document in Latin. It's called the Instrumentum Laboris. And that is the kind of prepared summary going into the synod. And it was basically understood under John Paul II's pontificate that most of the bishops and cardinals who would show up would more or less rubber stamp what was presented in the Instrumentum Laboris. Under Certainly under Pope Francis, what we see is his encouragement for the bishops to embrace synodality, to really bring in perspectives from around the world, to consult experts. So on family life, they brought in theologians, they brought in sociologists and psychologists and anthropologists and so forth. They brought in families to talk about their experience from different cultures, different configurations and so forth. And what we have in anticipation of this synod, which will take place October 2018, is a number of consultations. And I can talk more about that. Well, one thing that I want to just ask about in the Synod on the Family, at least in the American context. So I was teaching theology at a college down in Tennessee when this was going on. And I remember very much that process. And I remember the rhetoric that surrounded it was that the bishops were exhorted to reach out to laypersons and to get input. And I actually went online and I looked at their survey. And what I realized in reading that survey was that it was actually they had taken the survey that was being given to the bishops and they had literally boilerplated it and put it online for laypersons. And there were questions that were highly technical, questions that were almost designed to throw off actual input about actual married lives in the process. And that was very frustrating to me. And so I'm wondering, first of all, did I miss something? Did I did I misread that approach of the bishops to the question of marriage and the family? And is there a similar problem or is there greater access now for young people to actually talk about their experiences in real time, in real life terms to the bishops? Yes, yes. Very, very good point. What you're describing is not representative of 
the experience of Catholics and of dioceses around the world. That is a U.S. phenomenon. And the reason is, we, you know, one of your favorite themes in Catholic social teaching is subsidiarity. And so instead of some big kind of center in Rome sending out a questionnaire, what the Holy Father and the prefect of the synod will do is instruct the bishops' conferences in respective countries to use, there's usually a template, but to design their own uh, mechanisms, uh, surveys, maybe they, they get a group that does the surveying or interest groups, kind of discussion groups to solicit feedback. The U.S. bishops, um, I don't think it's a surprise to many of our listeners, tend to be very skittish on that of actually being open to the real lived experience of women and men. You know, I'll give you an example, just it seems somewhat tangential, but an illustration of this is one of the biggest critiques of black theologians, including black Catholic theologians, of the one document the USCCB ever wrote on racism in the U.S., is that it doesn't actually take into consideration the lived experience or solicit the experience of what it means to be an African-American woman and man or a member of a family in this country. It's it's done at a very high level, very abstract. So there are good efforts, and, and the fact that they put this survey out there is certainly a good effort. You know, it wasn't like they totally tanked it, but I think you're right. There was a perception in the U.S. church of a game that was already set. Now, that was not the case, for instance, in Germany, and that was not the case, for instance, in other bishops' conferences and other locations around the world. So Pope Francis has been very clear. I want you to really have a conversation. I want you to raise difficult topics. I want you to push back and, and discuss with one another. This is a real, nothing is set in stone. Um, and so with the with the young adults, what we have is a, a similar sort of process. And there are a couple of different ways that the curial officers, in this case, the Dicastery for Family Life, led by uh, an American cardinal, Kevin Farrell, has solicited feedback and anticipation of this synod. One way has been surveys, and that's been sent out through, again, bishops' conferences, but also religious orders. The Franciscans, for instance, from our minister general, by way of the minister general from the Holy Father, had solicited feedback about young adults, young religious, young friars, people engaged in youth ministry and in college chaplaincy, that kind of thing to get feedback. So that's been kind of brought in. Uh, another thing that's been going on is the engagement with social media, and and that's really been striking. It's a unique thing. And so there are Facebook groups in languages all around the world and in, in, in real time where young adults have been offering feedback that has been kind of summarized and channeled. Another thing is the Holy Father called, and this is really why we're talking about this uh, in this episode, called for a pre-synodal meeting of young adults from around the world, and he invited 300 young people between the ages of 18 and 29 or somewhere around that range, certainly under 30. I'm no longer a young adult by this standard, but a range of, of young adults. And different countries were, bishops' conferences were invited to send different delegates. And the U.S. sent three. I know one of them, Katie Prejean McGrady, and, uh, and we've met uh, at various points in the past, very active and charismatic speaker at youth conferences and, and that sort of thing. She's a former high school teacher. There's a LaSallian brother. Brother Javier Hansen from the Lasallians, and then also Nick Lopez from San Antonio. Is exactly. the, that's the list that I have. That's exactly right. So those are the three U.S. representatives, but then there are these uh, representatives like them sent from all over the world, and they worked in language groups for a week from March 19th to March 24th, so very recently. 
And they, the Holy Father said to them, and this is really exciting, on the, on the 19th when the, when the pre-synodal meeting opened, he told them to be brave. He says, I have faith that in these days God will speak through you. We need to dare to have new sentiments, even if it means taking risks. He said again, be brave in these days. Say what you have to say. If you err, someone will correct you. In other words, he's like, you know, it's okay. Don't be afraid. If you say something and it's, you know, maybe you don't have the exact theological understanding. There, there are people there that serve as advisors. But he had this great image where he says we have to risk. He says a man or a woman who does not risk does not mature. An institution that chooses not to risk remains a child. It does not grow up. And he says, as a church, we need to grow up. I got to speak to that because... One of the things that I work on when I work with organizations around their communications message and their branding is it's not just a matter of getting out a message, but it's a matter of actually speaking to the culture that exists on the ground. And prior to Pope Francis, I I don't wish to speak out of turn here, but prior to Pope Francis, the culture of Catholicism was one that very much was not in that inviting, take-a-risk kind of flavor. If we look, for example, at the papacy of Pope John Paul II, if we look at the papacy of Benedict XVI, in both cases, it was much more monarchical, much more top-down, and the entire episcopacy was trained in that kind of culture. And so the notion that we would have a pushback against this and resistance to this is not surprising, but it is saddening. I'm really heartened that Pope Francis is making this kind of overture. I think that there are strong cultural factors, particularly in America, that make it very difficult for that invitation to be received. Yeah, totally. And I think what's heartening to me is we see, I'm just so impressed by the work of these young people. Again, it it follows uh, concurrently with the work of these youths, I mean, these teenagers in Florida, Parkland, Florida, and on the kind of wave of the March for Our Lives here in the United States and solidarity marches around the world. So the, the, these young people came together and after their – the way that it worked is they, they came, first of all, with input from around their respective dioceses, their respective countries. And so they had you know some data to begin with that they presented, but then they got into 20 different language groups where they were working on different things and then came together to form a, a document that they presented to the Holy Father on Palm Sunday. But this document is a kind of a summary of their discussion, a summary of the perspective of young adults. They had you know, total freedom, a blank check, as the Holy Father said, to present what it is that young people today are concerned about. And it's striking the things that come up. For instance, they acknowledge that some in their generation want the church to change its teaching on so-called polemical issues. And here they named a few, you know, there are contentious debates around same-sex marriage and use of contraception. I mean, this isn't new. And, and it's not that just because they raised that things are going to change, but they're naming the truth. Like you said, the on-the-ground reality where uh, a lot of these young people are or know, uh, are friends with, are family members to men and women who are gay and lesbian, for instance. And they're like, you know what? The way that the church talks about their experience does not align with the lived reality of their experience. So that's one thing. Another thing that they raised up in this document is that they noted that women are not given an equal place in church leadership. Now, they didn't call, they're not here, and they say at the opening of their document that this is not a theological text. They're not theologians. They're not bishops. They've been asked to give the straightforward kind of input of their experience and their perception, their lived kind of knowledge of the church and of their faith. And this is just simply 
a fact. You know, women, uh, they acknowledged a number of consecrated women religious and how great their work and vocation is in the church and lay leaders in the church, lay ecclesial leaders. But they said, you know, oftentimes they're not visible, that it's, it's men in leadership. And so that's an issue for a lot of young people. Another thing they were really kind of summarized was that the church must involve young people in its decision-making processes and offer them more leadership roles. And here, I think this is where I see the same sort of call from the teenagers and the young adults around the United States when it comes to, to gun violence, when it comes to the democratic processes. It's like, why do we reward people who've been around a long time, who've always just done it this way, who are who have a vested interest in maintaining the status quo and keeping a bureaucracy and cynicism that reinscribes this is the way we do it. There can be no change. And if I can just say one more highlight for me is that the, the word authentic appears over and over again, which to me is a touchstone of the millennial and Generation Z groups of young adults today, that they want authenticity. And the call is for let the church be what the gospel proclaims. And so they say also along those lines, we want authentic models, but they say we need rational and critical explanations to complex issues. Simplistic answers do not suffice. And so young adults today are saying we do not want to just be told because the church says so. Well, I just want to ask about the process, because when we looked at the Synod on the Family, we saw that there was a draft document that was promulgated that also had some of these same issues and some of these same kind of touchstone pieces that in the first draft were very presently and honestly addressed. And then that made a big splash in the media. And then we saw the redacted second draft, which pulled back significantly on these issues. And so I'm wondering what was presented to the Holy Father on Palm Sunday? Was it was it a draft that actually expressed the kind of honest yearning and searching that you're talking about? Or yes, was it, yes. okay, so it was not a draft that went through a, a, a sanitization process. Yeah, well, let me let me just, yeah, because it can be very complex. And so I'm, I'm grateful for the question. And this is sort of the Vaticanese that only, you know, it's a little bit inside baseball here. But so let me try to summarize it. What these young people did, this was an extraordinary gathering that was sponsored by and called for by Pope Francis and, and the General Curia in Rome. It was not the synod itself, and these are not delegates to the synod. The synod is, by definition, bishops, bishops who come together, and they will come together in October. We're not at the stage of the document you're referring to when it came to the synods, the two synods on the family. That's the what's called in Latin the instrumentum laboris or the working paper. So what this document was, was a 13-page kind of summary of the experience of young adults from around the world, these 300 representatives from all corners of the globe, from Australia to Iraq to various countries in Africa to European countries to North American countries and so forth. And this is presented to the family, Dicastery for Family Life, and to the Holy Father, and it will be used to, it will be incorporated as one of the resources in forming that instrumentum laboris, that working paper that the bishops will receive in the fall. And we anticipate that the instrumentum laboris, which will be that working document, will be released in the summer. But for the time being, if you want a perspective of what these 300 young adults came together to summarize, that is available on the Vatican website. There's a Vatican website that's dedicated just to the 2018 Synod, and it's got a lot of resources. It's got news articles. It's got summary texts. It's got uh, social media links. It's, it's pretty cool. And I can't remember that, what the – we'll have a link somewhere. Yes. So we're still awaiting that first draft document that the bishops will discuss. And again, I, we expect to have it sometime midsummer. 
We'll come back to this issue and there'll be more that we'll talk about. But for right now, thank you for just giving us an overview of this. And thank you also for answering my questions, because there's a lot that as a layperson, I'm oftentimes sort of on the outside of these questions. And it's really helpful to talk to somebody that is sort of a little closer into that piece. And if I can just add, too, you're not alone. And, and, and it's not just a matter of lay cleric in this case or lay religious. A lot of people aren't aware of it because there's just so much going on. But I do want to say that people keep your eyes open for this. Keep an eye on it. Check out the website. I encourage you to read the document or at least some of the the articles about it, because like the Parkland students, I get a real sign of hope for the church in the kind of enthusiasm for their faith, but also the realistic concern about making the faith authentic in a world where Christ can be proclaimed in the lives of those who so often are marginalized or overlooked or discriminated against even within our own church. And so we'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Francis Effect. Thank you for being with us. The Francis Effect is made possible in part by our wonderful supporters at Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod to find out about how you can join them. A couple of dollars a month really adds up, and we appreciate it. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash francisfxpod. Thank you. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Haran, and I'm here with David Dahl. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Our next topic is sadly one that we have talked about before. It's one that continues to rend our hearts and in our minds as we look at police brutality, violence, particularly against persons of color, especially against young black men. We had very recently on March 18th, the shooting of Stefan Clark, who was killed by Sacramento police officers, a 22-year-old African-American man, the father of two young children. He was shot just in his grandmother's front lawn. There are a number of number of details that are continuing to come to light. And I, well, I'll turn it over to you, David. Tell us a little bit more about this, and, and uh, maybe this can open up our conversation. Sure. Well, so some of the details are that the person, Stefan Clark, was in his backyard. So he was within the territorial boundaries of his own space. And he was shot 20 times by officers who did not identify themselves, did not give Stefan Clark the opportunity to identify himself, And the rationale for the shooting was that they noticed an object in his hand, and the object in his hand turned out to be a cell phone. His girlfriend's cell phone. His girlfriend's cell phone, which my understanding was it was was white and bulky, and so not something that would look like a gun. But he did have an object in his hand, which apparently is enough in our culture for certain segments of the population to get a death sentence. And if I sound a little upset about this, it's because I'm upset about this. So, I mean, there are things about this that are by the books if you are familiar with these kinds of situations. So the police did use body cameras and there is helicopter footage, but the audio from the body cameras is not available. Well, part of it is, if I remember correctly, that somebody on the scene said mute and they they turned off the audio. Correct. And so if you think about what that implies, regardless of what actually went on in the situation, just as an outside observer, 
the whole notion of body cameras, they're there to give transparency to the public because these are public servants. And the public servants are making choices about editing in real time what the public is allowed to see and hear about these situations. So that's one piece. The second piece is simply the matter of where have we arrived in our culture when a person who is within the confines of their own space, the the space where they live, if public servants can enter that space and can have lethal force in an instant, we've reached a really strange place in our culture. And so there's a lot here that we can unpack. But in particular, I want to take the energy that I feel around this and I want to channel it because my energy, my hot take on this is very raw. And so one of the things that's helpful to me is to think about this through the lens of Catholicism, through the lens of Catholic social teaching, because I talk to people who very rightly, I think, feel themselves to be part of a community that is under siege. And some of the people that I'm in conversation with uh, will begin to say things like, this is an example of why we should disarm the police. This is an example of why we should rethink policing in communities and the way in which we approach communities as other within our own borders and boundaries. And as I read the Stefan Clark information, as I encounter more stories like this, I become more inclined to at times agree with these kinds of calls to disarm the police, to rethink policing. And so one thing that I want to ask is when we look at the way that Catholic teaching, the catechism, the, the encyclicals, look at things like police power. Do we have any reference points to navigate from? Sort of. I mean, not not specifically on, on this issue. There have been some bishops who have, exercising their ordinary magisterium in their respective dioceses, have spoken out about this and have written pastoral letters about the clear structural violence. I mean, this is a systemic issue that disproportionately, nearly exclusively, not totally, but nearly exclusively involves, you know, men of color. But, you know, kind of at the universal level, you know, this is a uniquely American problem. And I think we have to own this. I mean, I know we might sound like broken records, but at the end of the day, this is not only is this an issue, and and I I appreciate you bringing in another perspective about, you know, this is this guy's in his he's in his own home property. And so for the libertarians and the and the kind of people who are very focused on private property and this kind of stuff about which the church has very nuanced and and complicated teachings about. But there are some people who are rah, rah, my private property, I can do as I please, sovereignty and independence kind of thing. Well, then you should be alarmed by this. You should be outraged by it. But I would say something, you know, that, that the real issue here, again, is like you said, it's twofold. One is the way that we train police officers, the socialization, the cultural presuppositions, things that need to change on that level how officers of the peace are no longer officers of the peace, but are primarily interested in their own self-defense, it seems, or are socialized in a way that they strike first. It's a preemptive kind of violence. The other thing is, it's not universal. If this was a white man on his lawn, you know, we saw this in a non, or I should say a less violent way some years back in, 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 in Cambridge, Massachusetts with uh, Professor Henry Louis Gates Jr. trying to get into his own property and being arrested for attempting to break and enter. The, the, the common denominator here is the social presumptions around a person's race. And this young man was doing, whether he had done things in the past or not, this is the other kind of uh, horrible stigmatizing kind of sin, I think, of our our media and of the politics that that circle these kinds of events. 
that people will try to say, oh, well, you know, when he was 18, he, you know, got it, got pulled over. Or when he was 19, he stole a candy bar or something. That's irrelevant. And as none ca- of those are capital crimes, no, by the way. No, no. And as Catholics, you know, we do not support capital punishment, right. you know. And so even if it were, uh, he does not deserve to lose his life. Here, he was clearly doing absolutely nothing in this instance. Well, and I want to I want to take one thing that you said and just push back against it, although I think I agree with what you're saying in principle. I want to contextualize it. So you made the statement that this is a uniquely American problem. So for some members of our population, yes. But I also want to raise which, up... Which members? Though, I'm and, and I'm, okay. I'm, I'm going to... Okay. That's, that's exactly where I'm going. So the analogies that I see to where this is not a uniquely American problem is when we think about communities that feel like they're under siege and feel like they can at any time be abused by police power, the analogies that I see are actually in countries like El Salvador, countries like where we see, for example, Archbishop... Oscar Romero, where we were just talking about him a couple weeks ago. So his experience was, here are authorized members of the state who are going in and literally with impunity, pulling people out of their homes and families and either killing them on the spot or disappearing them. Now, it may be a little bit of a stretch to make that kind of connection, but I think that for some communities, particularly African-American communities, and now increasingly for immigrant communities, Authorities having the impunity to come in and literally rip apart families and or do harm or even lethal harm to members of those families, we're seeing that as a reality. And I think that given Archbishop Oscar Romero's example, we need as Catholics to start naming that. Yeah, I think I think you bring up a good point, and I appreciate the follow-up, because what I mean to say isn't that targeted violence and violation of personal boundaries and property and so forth is the unique problem. I think what I mean by that is it's the racism that is the unique American problem, Yeah, that this country is built on the backs, almost quite literally, the backs of chattel slavery, yeah. of men and women who were who were kidnapped and brought across the world and forced into slave labor for generations. And that we have not come to terms with that yet. And that continues to inform all of this. I think it, you bring up a very good point that, that there, are, there are lots of places and lots of institutions, governments and government agents, such as in El Salvador, we can see it uh, now in places like Venezuela, you can see it in other parts of the world. So you're you're right that the violence itself and the fear of violence is is something shared more broadly. But this is where there's two sides in, in, in our American context when we talk about structural racism. There's also the reality of white privilege. I can walk through here if I can walk in any neighborhood in any city in this country and if something happens to me, it's very unlikely in terms of violence, it's very unlikely that I'm gonna be blamed for it. This young man, you know, was on his grandmother's property in his own home and was murdered. There's just no, there's no way around it. There's no, I, I, it's just so inexplicable. And I'm, and I'm frankly, uh, and I know you are too, I'm just sick and tired of it. And I'm not sick and tired of it in the sense that we need to not talk about it anymore. I'm sick and tired of it in the sense that, you know, like we'll talk in the next segment with, you know, Dr. Koblenz about mental health stigmatization, where there's blaming of the victims, the scapegoating that goes on. It's the same thing that happens here. Men and women of color are disproportionately disadvantaged and disenfranchised at every turn, historically so and in the present. And when something like this happens, the response, the defensive move on the part of police departments, on the part of gun owners, on the part of certain politicians is to say, well, he must have done something wrong. It's his own fault. 
It's not his fault that he's black. There's nothing wrong with that. That is, you know, just like it's not anybody's fault that they're any other kind of race or gender. The the fault is of society and, and the structural injustice that makes that an issue, that makes that the crime. And I understand completely the spirit in which you use the term, but I want to push back and I'd love to get your take on this because you use the term murder. And murder is unfortunately a legal classification for a certain type of killing. And so to say that Stefan was murdered is to make a judgment that currently our system of jurisprudence is not always willing to make. So it will no, that's right. It, Almost never. Forget yeah. it. Not even in not even a charge, let yeah. alone an indictment. No, I, I I welcome the pushback and I double down on it. It's not premeditated murder. It's not first degree murder, but it's certainly second degree murder and it and it's a hundred percent manslaughter. Right? Yeah. Or person slaughter. We should probably update that term. But in the sense that you know, there is a kind of premeditation, I would argue, and this may get too philosophical, too sociological or psychological, but the ways in which our law enforcement officers are socialized, are trained, uh, the way that they, the culture is a culture of protection analogous to the culture of protection around the clergy sex abuse in the United States and around the world. It is a kind of clericalism because a, a clergy is, a, is an elite group of people who end up protecting themselves and, and police officers are. Uh, it's where we get that kind of pushback of the quote, all lives matter and the thin blue line rhetoric. And that is deeply disturbing to me. But let's also stress that this culture extends to and racism extends to officers of color. So oh, this, yeah, we're not sure. just we're not just talking about officers just, who are white. That's right. Yeah. That, that what we find is that institutionally and there are psychological studies that go with this as well, that when you look at communities of color, they also stigmatize persons of darker pigmentation. And when we look at an institution like the police force, the police force takes that sort of nascent bias and it institutionalizes it in several ways with rhetoric and with other. I mean, so let's just take one police term. So if you're listening ever on police band radio, and why should I know this? But I do sometimes. Nerd. Yeah. <laughs> you'll, you'll hear the term number one male. Okay. And number one male is another way in police lingo of saying African-American man of a certain age range. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so they no longer say it's an African-American male, but they use this term of art. This euphemism. This euphemism, number one male, to to utilize this to get to the same place. And so if if someone is saying, well, who's the suspect? Suspect is a number one male. Okay. That means that the very first classification that they have for a type of suspect, if if you want to take the rhetoric in that way, is an African-American male of a certain age range. Now, how does this fit into our discussion from our last episode? Because the entire society is stigmatizing this particular demographic. And there are real sociological effects, both economically, but also in terms of lethality. Yeah, that's right. And, And that's something that we as persons of faith need to be honest about. And we need to look at our sisters and brothers in places like El Salvador and the kind of state that they were living in every day and realize that some of our brothers and sisters in America are living in that same kind of political reality. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think you bring up a good point because this isn't just white officers that we're talking about. And when you talk about structural or systemic injustice, whether it's racism or sexism, there's a socialization that's, you know, or, or think about homophobia. Think about the gay and lesbian men and women who have internalized a hatred of or fear, a fe- sense of in- inadequacy. You know, we, we see this uh, in the gendered kind of uh, vector. You see it in a racial vector. We see it in a class vector. You know, wherever you have systemic injustice or oppression, it, it affects 
you know, it's kind of a double bind of victimization in this case. So that's a that's a very good point. And I think as Catholics, you know, just to kind of bring it around full circle again, I, I think we can't lose sight of what St. John Paul II pointed out, too, in his encyclicals in the 90s, that racism is an intrinsic evil and that it's it's a structural and social injustice against which we need to fight as much as other ones that are identified like capital punishment, euthanasia, abortion, and, and the rest. And so, you know, maybe this is a good way for us to end. I'm, I'm Sadly, I'm afraid we'll probably come back to this again because we need to keep talking about it. But as people of faith, if you identify as pro-life, then you have to be for life. And this is an instance of, again, you know, Stefan Clark is just the latest, you know, illustration of something that has been going on for as long as this country exists. It is it is a new form, I think, of, of lynching where people are, because of the structural racism, people are, are targeted because of their racial identity and, and the perceived identity. They are murdered with impunity. And people are not held accountable for that, much like we saw in, in Jim Crow South and, and so forth. So we continue. We certainly keep uh, Stefan Clark's uh, family in, in prayer, and we remember him as well, and, and all uh, our sisters and brothers who, who face this kind of discrimination. But we, especially people like David and myself, as white men, it's, it's our responsibility as well to talk about this, to change the conversation, to highlight this injustice, and we encourage you to do the same. Hello, this is David, uh, outside the podcast realm for the moment, just talking to you in advertising land. If you're enjoying the conversation that we're having, I want to make sure that you're aware that I do another show as well called Things Not Seen, Conversations About Culture and Faith. That's a weekly show that's been on since 2011, and we've talked to some amazing guests. It's basically a long-form interview where we get a chance to talk about how faith animates a person's life. We talk to authors and politicians and tastemakers and musicians, any kinds of folks that have some sort of faith component to their lives. So I'd love it if you get if you gave that a chance, too, and gave that a listen. That's at thingsnotseenradio.com. That's thingsnotseenradio.com. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. We are delighted today to have a guest join us here in the studio. Jess Koblenz is on the faculty at St. Mary's College in California. She's a theologian that works on a variety of topics, including U.S. liberation theologies, especially feminist and anti-racist theologies. And she thinks critically and constructively about Christianity's complicity in human suffering. I am fascinated to talk to her. But Dan, you actually know her better than I do. I just know her on paper. So tell us a little bit about how you know Jess. Well, Jess and I are good friends. At least I think so. I don't know. She can contest this, but we met in doctoral studies in Boston College. So shout out to the Eagles and all of our fellow Bostonians out there. So David and I invited you to join us to talk a little bit about one of your areas of research, which is very, very sadly pertinent right now, and that is 
public discussions around mental health issues. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's been really striking to us as we've talked about the Parkland shootings, as we've talked about violence and poverty, systemic racism in places like here in South Chicago and where we live, we notice that oftentimes the only time that mental illness, mental health enters the news cycle is when something really tragic or violent happens. So tell us a little bit about your observations on that front. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right that most of the time in the mainstream news cycle that we hear about mental health issues is when there is a sort of mass shooting uh, and people are looking for some kind of explanation for why this has happened. And uh, typically a number of politicians, it tends to be GOP politicians in particular who are resistant to talking about gun regulation. They often bring up the mental health of the shooter as an explanation for why the particular tragedy that they're addressing has happened. The implication being that only somebody who has a mental health issue, a mental illness, would be in the state of mind that would lead them to execute one of these mass shootings. And one of the things that we've talked about is there are many, many millions of people who every day deal with mental health issues, just like there are millions of people every day in this country who deal with physical health issues, Mm -hmm. and they don't act violently. They don't shoot dozens of people. The greatest risk actually is probably self-harm more than anything else. Mm -hmm. And so there's this kind of not only stigmatizing that goes on, but a a reinscribing of this stigma and a blaming of victims. I mean, is that your take too? Absolutely. There's a couple things that are of concern with the turn to mental illness when these things come up. The first is that I think it misrepresents most people's experience of mental health issues, the vast majority of people's experiences of mental health issues. Some statistics say that one in five Americans have some sort of diagnosed mental health issues, which tells you just how broad that category is. If if I can just interrupt to get a follow-up there to help us understand for our listeners, they might hear mental health issues or mental illness, and they're thinking something, you know, again, because of the stigmatization of people who have maybe very, very serious illnesses that include symptoms that are, quote unquote, you know, acting out or, quote unquote, crazy, which is a really pejorative term, and I'm using air quotes for those who are listening, because this is the way people generally talk about it. But mental health issues, they span a whole spectrum, right? Yeah, I can give you an example of that. So the National Alliance on Mental Illness, NAMI, is probably the most well-known, well-resourced national organization dealing with these issues. And if you go to their website, their homepage, and you look at the list of mental health issues that they work on, it ranges from things like ADHD and autism to schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, depression. And so, I mean, most listeners, I imagine just from their sort of regular familiarity with these conditions know that experiences of ADHD and experiences of something like schizophrenia are vastly different. So the category of mental illness, mental health issues is hugely vast. And that is certainly not being addressed, first of all, when people are pointing towards people with mental illness when it comes to these shootings. On top of that, within this broad category of uh, what constitutes a mental health condition, statistically, people with mental health conditions are tend to be 
nonviolent or, or less violent, they actually are more vulnerable to being victims of violence than people who do not have mental health conditions. So they tend to be victims. It's actually the opposite of the sort of public narrative about mental health. And in some statistics that I saw, it's something like 3% of violent crimes in the United States are committed by people who have some sort of diagnosed condition, only 3%. And so that's certainly contrary to the narrative that we constantly hear in response to these mass shootings. So I want to take two steps back, Jess, and I want to ask, first of all, so we're talking right now kind of in a secular and technical sense about mental health, Mm -hmm. but you're a person who works in a religion department, you do theology, and I'm interested partly in in where you see the intersection of theological studies and these mental health issues, because they might not be clear to our listeners, but I know that they're clear to you. Mm -hmm. First of all, I think that all Christians, in my case, all the Christian theologians, should be engaging the reality of our world, particularly the realities of those who are suffering and who are the most vulnerable in our midst. And I think that all Christians should be concerned about the realities of mental health, whether they are personal or whether they're experiences that are alive in their communities. They should be concerned about them because people are suffering and Christians ought to be concerned and attentive to that. Now, how Christians conceptualize what kind of experience a mental illness or mental health issues are is a live theological conversation. It's one of the the things that intrigues me. Some people talk about mental health issues like depression, for example, as a sort of illness, not unlike cancer, for example, because the actual multidisciplinary study of depression, and in this case, that's the, the issue that I work on the most, is so contested among all sorts of scholars. There's a lot of contestation also among theologians about how we think about this theologically. Is it an illness like cancer? Is it better to think about it more broadly, like another form of suffering, maybe akin to the oppression of racism or sexism or uh, other sorts of tragedies that people experience? And actually how we classify this type of suffering in terms of illness or not, or suffering or not, informs how theologically, as Christians, we think about it and think about God's relationship to it, which is really my interest. I've heard some evangelicals talk about mental illness in terms of demonic possession, and I know that that's not the direction that you're going, but if we think about, for example, the Gerasene demoniac, I mean, I've heard that story told through a mental health lens, and so the intersection of the spiritual and the mental, the spiritual and the psychological, that's a a part of what we're talking about, but I, I also hear very clearly that you were sort of bright lining those kinds of questions out from the kind of theological inquiry that you do. Is that correct? Yeah, and and in part, the kind of theological inquiry I'm doing is in response to some of these other interpretations in the American Christian community. Because a demonic interpretation could be very stigmatizing. Absolutely. Yeah, and so you want to kind of destigmatize the mental health labeling and find ways that we can be welcoming to these persons and find ways to include them in the community that don't include narratives of them needing to be healed or whatever. Absolutely. Right. And there and there's some really interesting social scientific research done by Christian psychologists in particular who have actually surveyed Christian communities in the United States. And there are 
there are statistics that show that Catholics, for example, are much less likely to attribute mental health issues to demonic possession or even to sin more broadly. But certainly there are a lot of communities. It tends to be more likely in Pentecostal communities, evangelical communities, as you said, where absolutely the most common, one of the most common explanations for why somebody is experiencing a mental health issue is because they are possessed by a demon or they have sinned. And this is a sort of punishment for that sin. Therefore, the solution is repentance, which puts a lot of responsibility on the person who's suffering to manage their condition personally. And as you said, that leads to a lot of stigma. Not only stigma, but in, in the moral frame, it, it leads to what we call guilt and culpability, right? So it's, as, as you said, you know, not only are people who suffer mental health conditions more vulnerable and more likely to be victims of violence, they're victims of the stigma, they're victims of the blame and are, are kind of told it's your fault and it's your responsibility, whether because of sin or, or the like. And, you know, I'm wondering too, bringing it back around to kind of the presenting issue right now, is that when you have, you know, the Republicans, when you have gun lobbyists and others throwing mental health as the scapegoat to say, well, this is the issue, it's not guns, you know, this, again, I can't say, I can't highlight how absurd the phrase guns don't kill people. You know, people kill people. You know, people with guns kill people. Mm -hmm. You know, that's mm -hmm. that's the equation. But that they blame mental mental health uh, to me is just it's just striking. So I'm wondering, too. You know, maybe putting it in kind of a pragmatic frame, if we're trying to move from the stigmatization, do you have practical suggestions? You know, where do we start? How do our listeners? How do David and I? How do we start? thinking about how we use language when we talk about mental health, when we talk about instances uh, that are kind of anomalous, like people shooting hundreds or dozens or, you know, tens of other people. Do you have suggestions for things we can do on the one hand? And what is a Christian response in light of that? Mm -hmm. I think one immediate response to the blaming of, or I would say scapegoating yeah. of people with mental health issues in response to these mass shootings is to really push politicians or, or other people that are kind of using this narrative to be much more specific about what they mean. Even that, I think, will start to dissolve this narrative. If, if, if we insist on using much more specific or hold, holding people accountable to a much more specific language and conversation around mental health, you'll start to see that this sort of the blaming, the scapegoating falls apart. That's the first thing is holding people accountable when they use these these narratives. Also, I think people can take responsibility for educating themselves about the realities of mental health issues in our communities. This is something that will not only help us generate a more informed assessment of these public narratives, but I, I've seen how much of a difference that can make when people are presented with mental health struggles in their own communities, in their own lives. One of the real challenges for people in all communities, but including the Christian community, is that when these mental health issues arise, people are often overwhelmed because they don't know what to do. They don't know how to help people. They don't, yeah, they don't know where to go. And so people fall back on these sort of stigmatizing narratives that we hear in the mainstream media 
What I would love to see is uh, for Christians to take the initiative to educate themselves more about these conditions so that when uh, inevitably they arise in their communities, they're equipped to direct people towards resources, to accompany people who are struggling, um, to advocate for themselves if these issues arise in their own lives, which is so important. Yeah, it's just, just so, so, so important. So when we think about Christian responses, when we think about the ways in which we are trying to destigmatize these questions about mental health, it sounds like there's a lot of intersections that are coming into this question. And one of the things that has always struck me is that when we talk about mental health issues, we don't include issues like economics and race and access to support or care or those kinds of things. So to what extent does intersectionality play into these kinds of questions, both on the social level, but also on the theological level? Mm-hmm. Great question. I think some of the most interesting research on depression, for example, right now is asking these big social questions, is asking about how these realities that you're naming are at play in people's experiences. People are talking about these social issues when they're exploring the cause of depression. There's statistics, pretty consistent statistics, that women, for example, experience depression at a higher rate than men. There's lots of questions around why that is. Some people say that women are more likely to report, for example, that they have a mental health issues because of certain stigma around this in our sort of social constructions of masculinity. Nonetheless, this is a pretty consistent statistics, and some people have said, well, because of the sexism that women experience throughout their lives, one of the ways that, uh, or one of the effects of that is a a sort of depressive state, and that part of what, uh, in turn, has to be addressed for women to not, I don't want to say overcome depression, that's not how it works, but to cope with it more is to actually start to recognize and begin to sort of process and even resist some of the sexism that they experience. Similar uh, conversations are happening in relation to racism increasingly as well and the effects uh, that that has on African-American communities in the U.S., for example. So there's there's all these questions right now about how these social factors might actually cause depression and other mental health conditions like anxiety. Even among those who don't want to point to these social realities as a cause of depression, these social realities are certainly a concern for those who are trying to live with and get treatment for these conditions. It is incredibly expensive to get any type of treatment for a mental health condition, especially for people who are experiencing really severe mental health conditions. uh, Treatment can be a matter of life or death. And so the fact that we are in a country where healthcare is incredibly expensive, even for people who do have health insurance, Often rural and poor communities don't have access to the mental health care professionals that they need, even if they have insurance, because of how resources are distributed. And on top of that, there's there's a lot of stigma around it that people have to overcome. And depending on the sort of educational resources around mental health that they're exposed to, that can be an additional obstacles in certain communities. All, All of that is a concern no matter what you attribute depression to in terms of cause. Now, have the bishops spoken out about mental health in in any way? Is there any kind of encyclical about this? I'm actually not familiar. 
No, uh, I think it was in, I want to say 1993. Don't hold me to that date. John Paul II was at a, I think it was a healthcare conference and spoke a little bit about mental illness and exhorted Christians to, to address that condition with care. But it's a very brief statement. And I have not found much else on that from the sort of ecclesial ecclesial leadership. I, I recently discovered a, a pastoral letter from the USCCB on addiction that came out in 1990. But how addiction kind of fits into the umbrella of mental health issue is, is a question for some people. They don't often associate those things so closely. And that was a very, very specific pastoral letter. Well, there's a lot more to talk about. We're so thankful that you had the chance to come and be with us today. So I just, I want to say, Jess, it's wonderful to meet you. I know that Dan has known you for a while, but I'm looking forward to you being a friend of the show and you coming back on at other times to talk to us about other issues. And in fact, you're going to be sticking around for a bonus segment to be talking to us about theology and suffering and some of those things. So we're looking forward to hearing that as well. But thanks for being here with us today. Thanks for having me. The Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media. We recorded the show at the William Adams Studio here in beautiful Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the position of any institutions with which we might be affiliated. We have production space courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. They're not responsible for the content of this program, but they're wonderful folks, and you should check them out at zygoncenter.org. That's Z-Y-G-O-N center dot O-R-G. We also want to give a shout out to our friends at the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They're also not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. Not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done, but you also unlock bonus content from our episodes. Again, that's patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. Likewise, our website is francisfxpod.com. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisaffectpod at gmail.com. If you're here for the first time, welcome. We've got a bunch of episodes you can check out from our first season. Please go back and listen to those. Thanks for listening.